electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, to the edge of space and beyond. Three, two, one, release, release, release. Sir Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic make it to space. CNBC's Morgan Brennan there, on Earth though, for the launch. This has been 17 years and upwards of a billion dollars personally in the making. You want those windows pointed down towards the Earth to maximize that incredible view. And what the view meant to the guy that saw it, Sir Richard Branson. Everything I'd envisioned it would be and a thousand times better. Absolutely impossible to describe it unless you're actually doing it. So why not ask someone that did? Astronaut and NASA Administrator Bill Nelson on the views and the dreams. We never want to lose our character as explorers, as adventurers. That's part of who we are as Americans. It used to be a westward frontier. Now it's upward. But first, we're diving into the Delta variant back here at home. President Obama's White House health policy head, Dr. Kavita Patel. Thus far, the data that has been transparent supports all three of our current authorized vaccines in the United States provide more than enough immunity against severe hospitalization and death. Those stories, plus Black Widow has hit the box office and a global tax rate could be coming to a country near you. It's Monday, July 12th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. I don't know. It's Monday. It's a Monday, 127 points. That's about what you expect. Just the Monday. We're back. Down 127. We're back at work. It's just, you know, I don't ascribe anything to it. It's earnings week. We're going to start. The floodgates will open eventually, and we'll get to see exactly how companies have been doing during this reopening, but with... Uh, maybe some difficulties getting the, uh, the, the labor that, that they want, getting workers to, to come in in certain, uh, in certain areas. It, you've, I've seen some restaurants say, look, don't expect great service. We just, we're doing what we, we can, can, but we just don't have, uh, we're not staffed up, up to par where we'd like to be. And you guys were, you know, messing around, screwing off last week, whatever you were doing. Um, Working. Well, okay. Uh, whatever you were doing, we did get down to one. Were you watching it all? One, I did. I one turned on there. Thursday morning to see what was happening because I couldn't believe where the yield was. Yeah. So you weren't out good, on some... It was good, so f- concise. Were you on the too. Serengeti or something, Sorkin? Were you away from a TV or what? I don't, I don't know. Your life is so interesting. I, I don't... I have to tell you, happily, happily, I actually did not watch TV last week. There you go. There you go. That, that's good. You know... What about summer camp for kids? I, I, we, we talked to someone who did, who did it. No phones for six weeks. Mm-hmm. 
That appeals to me. Not me, but that appeals to me for people that shouldn't be on the phone. Yes, that shouldn't be on quite. (laughs) Well, it's it's one way to break the habits that I think we all got too used to during the pandemic. Way too much screen time for kids. But, yeah, take it away. Go cold turkey. I don't know. It's an idea. It's an idea. I don't know. They might, you know, being 20. You wouldn't last three hours. Right. Being 21 and 19, I'm not sure if I tell them they're going to camp, they're going to listen to me uh, at this point. That that might not. uh, Probably not. Yeah, probably not. Some entertainment news this, uh, involving movies, but we need to talk about all the other stuff over the weekend. Uh, soccer. Soccer. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Italy. Cheering Italy on. I love that. Um, did anyone watch McGregor? Nope. You, see Mc, you didn't see McGregor Saturday night? It was one of those totally. Joe, Th- Joe Theismann type injuries. It was unbelievable. I had Poirier, too, to win. And he, mm. he's a classy guy. McGregor didn't do himself. You know who was in the front row, Sorkin? Ari. Ari. Front row. Ari. Right there through the entire of fight. He would. That, who else would With be? his headphones. Well, Trump was there. Justin, the, 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 the believer, was there. Uh, just all the, I mean, it was Bob Kraft. Everybody. It was it was cool, though. And the the, uh, the earlier fights were unbelievable. It was really cool. It was really cool. Anyway, we're going to talk about I'm not going to say these are the kind of films Barry Diller was talking about. But you, anybody want to see this Black Widow? Anyone? Is there anything that's not CGI in this thing? The latest Marvel film, Black Widow, uh, brought in 80 million dollars at the domestic box office over the weekend. Uh, the most for any film since the pandemic hit. I think really. What Barry's talking about. Disney also revealed that it generated more than $60 million globally uh, from sales of the film on Disney Plus uh, platform. That's the first time the company's released information about movie sales from its streaming service. Uh, The film debuted in theaters and for $30 on the streaming network on the same day. G20 finance ministers met in Italy over the weekend to negotiate a pathway to a global minimum tax. This could impact the world's biggest companies and fastest growing startups, too. Elon Moy joins us right now. She's got the details on that. And this is pretty complicated, Elon. Yeah, Becky, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen spearheaded that effort, which would not only establish a global minimum tax, it would also rewrite the tax rules for the largest multinationals. Now, Yellen did tell reporters yesterday there was enthusiasm behind this agreement. The international tax deal protects the free, open economic order that is crucial for investment and growth. And at the same time, it's welcome news for middle and working class people around the world. And I think especially for the American people. The plan would set a global minimum tax rate of at least 15 percent. The G20 finance ministers, along with the OECD, hope to finalize the framework and come up with a detailed plan for implementing it by October. And the group urged holdouts like Ireland and Estonia to join in. It also requires countries to stop targeting America's tech giants with digital taxes. Instead, countries would be able to tax multinationals with revenues of more than $20 billion on profits above 10%. Financial firms and extractive industries, however, are exempted. Now, Yellen told reporters it could be spring of next year before this part of the deal is complete. And guys, it's very likely the Senate will need to ratify that agreement with a two-thirds majority. Back over to you. Elon, that's probably the tricky part, the idea of getting Congress, two-thirds of Congress to agree to anything. I mean, we can't even get a bipartisan infrastructure bill through Congress. 
Yeah, absolutely. Remember, it's not just the U.S. Congress, but it's going to be the legislatures of the 130 plus countries who are signing on to this plan as well. So in the U.S., what Yellen said was that uh, the global minimum tax piece, she was hoping that could move as part of the um, budget resolution and sort of reconciliation process um, that is underway with the American Families Plan um, as part of Biden's larger human capital infrastructure plan. But that second piece around digital taxes, which is so crucial to the way this whole scheme would work, that would require a new international treaty, which the Senate would then have to ratify. So the political timeline for that, um, both because of the reconciliation process that would come before it and because, as you mentioned, the lack of bipartisanship right now on Capitol Hill is going to be extremely tricky. So they could do part of it budget reconciliation, and that would just be a straight majority. The other part of it requires two-thirds of the Senate to vote on it. And if one part doesn't get done, the other part falls apart, too? Like, this is, it's got to go hand in glove? Yeah, I think that the key issue here is that uh, other countries are going to be looking at the United States to see if we can make good on our promises. The removal of those digital taxes um, was something that the U.S. fought for. It was a primary motivator for the U.S. in these discussions. And it was the U.S. that really wanted these two things to be linked. And so if the U.S. can't make good on the deal and the framework that it's been spearheading, that it's sort of proposed, then I think the rest of the world is going to look at it and say, hey, if the U.S. can't get it done, why should we? So there is a lot hinging on what can happen domestically through the legislative process. What's the timeline that they've given? Have they given one? Or is there even like a whisper timeline that people are talking about? Yeah, so October for the global minimum tax sort of framework, um, and then each country would have to go through and try to get it implemented within its own, uh, within its own legislature uh, or within, within its own parliament. And then spring... At the optimistic, uh, at the optimistic uh, uh, time time frame for the second part of the the digital service taxes piece. Thanks, Elon. I think we're going to be talking about this through next spring and maybe even longer than that. The billionaire space race. Sir Richard Branson blasting off on a Virgin Galactic flight yesterday. It was a mission that was years in the making. In fact, here's what he told us right here on Squawk Box back in October of 2017. Space needs a lot of, a lot of companies um, doing different things to benefit the Earth back here. There are thousands of people who would love the opportunity of becoming astronauts and, and going into space. And Virgin Galactic is the only company that's built a spaceship with wheels that can come back and land again um, and take, take people up and get, you know, enable them to become astronauts. I taped this and watched it, and unfortunately I taped it on CNN and I just felt bad about the whole thing because of the capitalists and the climate change and everything else. Made me feel, I just wish I hadn't done it after watching that coverage, but I was watching Wimbledon well, we, instead, Andrew. Let's talk, about, let's talk about both. I watched it live and it was remarkable. Folks, we are headed to space. Sir Richard Branson achieving a dream yesterday, a dream for himself, but also a dream for many others. Uh, blasting off from New Mexico and reaching the edge of space. Two pilots guiding Virgin Galactic's VSS Unity above uh, the 20,000 feet uh, spot there, carrying Branson and three employees. Here's Branson after the successful mission. I think like, like uh, most kids, I have dreamt of this moment since I was a kid. And but honestly, nothing could prepare you for uh, the view of Earth from space. Um, 
I mean, it, oh, the whole thing, it was just magical. And suddenly you're looking down and you're seeing three people looking up at you. And hang on, man, what are you doing down there? <laughs> they, um, uh, they, uh, we had this incredible earth. Anyway, I, 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 I'm just taking it all in. It's just unreal. And after the flight, Branson announcing a new sweepstakes to win two seats on one of the first Virgin Galactic commercial space flights. That's expected to take place uh, early next year. Uh, meantime, fellow billionaire Jeff Bezos is planning his own trip to space. That's going to happen on July 20th, one week from tomorrow. He posted a message to Branson on Instagram saying, congratulations on the flight. Can't wait to join the club. So uh, the space race is on. Joe, I, I did see, I flipped around, I was listening and, uh, and, and, and reading because there are, there are a whole bunch of people who are not happy that the space race uh, is on for lots of reasons. Uh, folks thinking they, this is some kind of uh, ego race. There's a, as you said, there's a climate question. There's a billionaire question. There's Andrew, all the sorts left, of all sorts of. The, the left loves to eat its own. Uh, they just can never be happy. Uh, I think it's great. It's awesome. I have questions. I mean, which is the better way to do it? Does it really matter whether you go above that line or not? Line. Does it? Can you really can you really do new commercialized space in terms of doing experiments up there where you can do all these things we can't do down here? And will it be better if normal scientists can go up versus astronauts doing the experiments? Because they're all PhDs anyway. And I'm wondering, can you eventually commercialize, I don't know, asteroids or something? Because the whole idea of precious metals becomes not so precious if you've got a whole asteroid up there that has I mean, it'd be great. If, to have if it. you were the one who mined it, yes. Right, if you were the one who mined it. But there's all kinds of really neat questions uh, about, about where we go from here. It's amazing. You get your wings. I, 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 I will say, Andrew, didn't you think, hey, this, I think I can do this? Because it looked like the inside of a, like a oh, Gulf Stream. It's like, that struck me, though. It doesn't look too bad. We're talking so about you, 53 you, miles. You ready to go up now? Limited. I'm not ready. I don't it have. It wasn't as scary as I, as I thought right. it would be. It's nice to see other people do it, but it's also kind of amazing to think that just how small the atmosphere is 53 miles and, and you're out of here like think about driving 53 miles and that's the end but you're when you're up 40,000 feet don't you feel high when you, yeah, I have you're no going 10 it times it ten, I, I have no desire to do 10 it 10 times just, that I can More understand yeah. I can understand people who do want to do it at this point yeah. and think that it's viable and and not nearly as frightening as it would have been a couple of years ago here's my question for you though what's the pri at what price point would you do it? So let's say we know it's completely and utterly safe. Yeah. It's going to be a fun thing that you would do for an hour Less. or two, right? I mean, collectively. <laughs> Is it a, would you pay, would you pay $25,000, $10,000, $5,000? A first class ticket, I think, from New York to California these days is five plus thousand dollars these days. So I, I don't know. I, I wonder, because right now, obviously, it's a lot more than that. Compared to a, a you know, a signature or whatever, not signature, but wheels up or whatever they are now, any of the, uh, that's expensive. I, I, I don't know, would, and it depends on who you are too, Andrew, and, and we, you know, we're fortunate people. We have one percenter problems that we're even talking about this. Yep. So um, I wouldn't pay two fifth, two, I wouldn't pay a quarter million, I'll tell you that much. Uh, would you pay 50? Me? No. I don't think I would. Uh, in fact, some of us, we're talking about you need to pay me 50 <laughs> to go right to to actually. And I definitely would have to go to the bathroom before. Uh, and during. Well, that's the problem because <laughs> you can't get up. 
And that, that, that I might don't be think a that I don't think there's an onboard bathroom there. Right. That might be a problem. You'll hear from a NASA official and an astronaut later. But before we head out of this world, we've got some updates on this one. Coming up on Squawk Pod, talking Delta variants and vaccines with President Obama's White House Health Policy Director, Dr. Kavita Patel. With the threat of the Delta variant and potentially other looming variants in the future, it seems like it's an inevitability that we're going to need a booster shot. But that trillion dollar question is when. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Roll alpha, up track. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Pfizer saying it plans to meet with top U.S. health officials today to make the case for federal authorization for a third dose of its COVID vaccine. Joining us right now is Dr. Kavita Patel, fellow at the Brookings Institution and former White House health policy director. And Dr. Patel, this, this idea of the third vaccination is kicking up um, a lot of interest and, and, and some pushback, too. Dr. Anthony Fauci saying nobody needs a third booster shot just yet. But, but what do you think? What do we know at this point? Yeah, Becky, good morning. I think what we know is that certainly immunity, even from six months ago, decreases over time. The question is, over how much time Pfizer is maintaining that they can start to see those decreases both through internal data sources, which we haven't seen, obviously, and external data from Israel that support that anywhere from starting at six to nine months after the two-dose regimen, that there's a decrease in the titers of antibodies produced by the body. Now, the other question that remains is what I imagine will be discussed with officials today or soon is how much you really do need. You can have decreasing immunity over time, Becky, but it can still be incredibly sufficient. And thus far, the data that has been transparent supports all three of our current authorized vaccines in the United States provide more than enough immunity against severe hospitalization and death. I guess the question becomes, and this is a question I think a lot of parents are facing right now, too, um, that, that's great that it's going to protect me from severe hospitalization or death, but my kids aren't vaccinated yet. And if the effectiveness goes, let's say, from 95 percent down to 65 percent, what are the odds that by me being out at work or going about my daily life that I could bring it home and infect my kids? I, I think that's probably the crucial question on this. I'm not worried about myself at this point. Yeah, that is the crucial question. And I think even more important uh, on top of, of that is 
So at what point then do parents need to get boosters? And it, it's really answering what you're pointing to, that important question of what we would call asymptomatic transmission. So even if you do not get sick or have any awareness of being ill, you could unintentionally, obviously, pass it on to unvaccinated individuals. So far, the data is sparse, Becky. It's not really systematic in its nature. And we we have data that show, points to early signs that you do not have a high threat of asymptomatic transmission. That being said, that's exactly what I think will happen with between federal officials, but also it's a global discussion, right? This is clearly not just implications for the United States, but with the threat of the Delta variant and potentially other looming variants in the future, it seems like it's an inevitability that we're going to need a booster shot, but that trillion dollar question is when. Seems like six months might be too soon. I was vaccinated in December, so I'm already kind of past that six-month due date. But many healthcare workers have already shown six to eight months later high levels of immunity, very low levels of uh, viral load if they indeed do become infected, pointing to a very low likelihood of that transmission that you were describing. So, Doctor, the, the, the Moderna and Pfizer, I can't remember how many... Uh, milligrams there were. One was more than the other. But could you just go get the same one? It'd be identical to the first, because they were identical. The Moderna and Pfizer were identical, the first two. Could I just go in and say, hey, just throw another one in my arm? The same, because, you know, they got some extra because no one wants them anymore. You could do, or do we need a whole new, uh, like, regimen or structure to do that? Yeah, Joe, great question. Tempting to do that, right? I've actually had patients come up and ask me, can I just get a third shot? of any kind, Pfizer or Moderna. I'm You're ready. Right, I'm, I'm ready. I'll go today. If you give me a time and a place, I would. I'll You're go right. <laughs> it's, here's the problem. There could be unintentional risks with that. In fact, we've seen patients who have unintentionally done that or even intentionally done that, and they've had even more dramatic side effects than the second shot. So I would not encourage anyone to do that. And the reason I think that it's important to see this internal Pfizer data is it seems to support that this booster, which would be tweaked to work against not just the Delta variant, but some of the newer variants that have cropped up that aren't variants of concern yet in the United States, but variants of interest in other parts of the world, this could be a much better kind of formula to be able to boost your immune system in a way that creates more of those memory and, and current cells against the Delta variant. So taking the third shot might be appropriate, Joe, if you're immunocompromised in a certain age group. And I think we have grown data for that. Not you, though, uh, I, no. I would say. But, <laughs> yeah. at, but it's a good question to ask for everyone to their doctors. Hey, doctor, what, what do you make of the criticism, which I think is unwarranted, but you may be on the other side, that, that Pfizer came out with this news, that they're pushing uh, to move forward with a booster at a time when the CDC has yet to say that, that, that one is necessary? Yeah, I, so... Look, I, I don't criticize Pfizer for having worked on the booster, developed a data set to support the use of a booster, and to work with the FDA to talk about what that data involves and the process for authorization. Remember, Andrew, this won't be like an authorization like the first set of vaccines because we're going to need different levels of data to support the immune development, immune response. And that's something they should talk about with FDA officials. I think where I would be critical is that it caught the public off guard because Every day now, when any manufacturer makes a vaccine press release, it does become front page news. And it certainly did not get coordinated with conversations between the CDC and the FDA. The regulators have no right to kind of, quote, proof those conversations. 
but they should be made aware. And you heard certainly Dr. Fauci echo that they did not realize that Pfizer was going to come forward with this, even though it was anticipated that Pfizer would put forward an authorization application in the near future. So the criticism here is that for science communication, it gets really confusing. Who do you listen to? And it just puts people in a, an awkward position to try to defend or not defend one position or another. Dr. Patel, the, the other question is the ethics of um, those of us in America getting a third shot before healthcare workers in developing nations get their first. And, it, you know, that's a more complicated and complex question, too. Yeah, it is, Becky. I will tell you, first of all, even as a booster gets authorized, we should expect and anticipate the CDC's advisory committee to start issuing recommendations on populations. It will not be come one, come all. Just like we saw with the initial rollout of vaccines by prioritization, you bring up a very important point and a question that the manufacturers should answer. How much of the development and manufacturing of a booster will actually take away from manufacturing for the worldwide process? That is critical. We've seen Pfizer lift its manufacturing more and more. Moderna has as well, as well as other ones, Novavax and others that aren't in the United States. But I do think that's going to be a question that will be discussed today between officials or when they meet, because it's not, just to put it simply, Becky, it's not going to help the United States if the remainder of the world remains unvaccinated and they could have had an opportunity to have hundreds of millions of doses because we got a booster. Doctor, last week we had uh, Scott Gottlieb on, and we were actually talking about the difference between the booster that's being proposed by Pfizer would be identical to the last one, and the one you mentioned that would be more suited to the variants, that that would have to go through all new testing, which wouldn't start until August. It sounded like you were saying that just the third booster would actually be designed to be uh, uh, more suitable for, for the variants. When I thought that was a totally separate thing, I thought it was going to be one booster would, would just be identical to the one that you already got, but a third shot. Another one being proposed would be one that where they'd actually tweak the messenger RNA to, to uh, be more uh, effective against the variants. Yeah, Joe, you're right. This is the booster that I think came out in the press release or the comments from Pfizer last week were for the same formulation. But again, I do think that it's dangerous to have people, because you could go walk in and get, as you mentioned, a third shot of Moderna, Pfizer, whatever, but you would have to make a pretty one. You couldn't just go do it with your card that you have now. It's not authorized on the label, or at least by the authorization. Number two, there is that risk of side effects. I do think that this is why you're going, this is why we're all waiting to see some of that internal data to understand what is it about that third shot and when and for whom? And I do feel like those are critical questions. It is not trivial what we're seeing with people who have taken more than the current regimen that's recommended with two doses, but you're correct. I actually do think that tweaking is the booster that we do want as a public, especially if we have data that supports the immunity that from the first two doses does remain over time which is what we have seen and support so far. But I think Becky asked the right question about asymptomatic transmission. And I do think that's why all of us are waiting to see some of the data Pfizer has. So what, what do you think happens first? We authorize a third booster shot or we authorize vaccines for kids as young as five or, or even younger than that? Because I, again, that's what parents worry about. Yeah, I actually do hope, Becky, to your point, I do hope it's continuing to show data for authorization of younger age groups, particularly 
as you know, under 12, we're leaving them exposed and it's becoming a hot button issue for school reopening. So one, let the data lead. As we know, kids are in trials right now. So those are ongoing and we should have, as the Pfizer CEO mentioned, readouts on that data late August, early September. That should be a high priority. It does feel like this announcement about a third shot really did kind of take people by surprise. And that seems to be a less lesser priority unless there's some data that we haven't seen yet than getting kids vaccinated, which we know are exposed. That's going to be the question. Let's let the science kind of dictate where this goes. And hopefully we'll know more about that internal data, too. Uh, Doctor, thank you very much. We really appreciate your time today. Great to see you. Cheese will be next. Enough with this world's problems. Next on Squawk Pod. That is a full duration burn, folks. We are headed to space. We're out of here. Sir Richard Branson, home from the edge of space. I hope we can get thousands and thousands of people to be able to experience what we experienced today. CNBC reporter Morgan Brennan on the ground for the launch says that dream might not be far off. In the next five, 10 years, it's very likely that we could see this potentially become more commonplace. And the next steps for innovators on Earth and beyond from a man who's been there himself astronaut and NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. The real space race is going to be more and more with China as the Chinese government becomes increasingly aggressive in their space program. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. The world's first, says here, billionaire astronaut, probably first knighted uh, astronaut, I think. There was a guy named Knight, but I don't, uh, Morgan Brennan joins us now. And she's out there. And you, uh, you're going to tell us about this first successful test flight, Morgan. But you also said you'd, you'd, you'd go in a minute. You weren't, like, trying to sneak on there. Were you, like, a stowaway or something? Is that, was that the general idea or...? I, I would so be a stowaway. I, 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 especially after watching this here on the ground in person yesterday, I would absolutely take a trip, a suborbital trip to the edge of space uh, if the opportunity ever arose to be able to document that as the first journalist in space. Yeah. Um, but that being said, he actually wasn't the first billionaire in space, but he's the first billionaire in space to have done so, gone to space on his own spacecraft. So this was a major milestone for commercial space overall after Virgin Galactic successfully completed its Unity 22 mission. This was the first fully crewed flight to the edge of space for the company specifically and for founder Sir Richard Branson, which with whom I spoke post-flight yesterday, this has been 17 years and upwards of a billion dollars personally in the making. Everything I'd envisioned it would be and a thousand times better. I mean, it's... Absolutely impossible to describe it, you know, to describe it unless you're actually doing it. And, and, and I hope we can get thousands and thousands of people to be able to experience what we experienced today. 
Well, so Sunday morning, the mothership Eve took off from here, Spaceport America, and at about 45,000 feet, it released the Unity spaceship, which then fired its rocket engines and accelerated to Mach 3, reaching more than 53 miles above the Earth. It had a few minutes of weightlessness there. You got to see views of the Earth before then, gliding back down to land on the runway here in the New Mexican desert. Uh, a little over an hour after takeoff. Now, Branson and two of his crewmates, the others, the other three, uh, have actually flown to space before, became astronauts with this trip as 500 people, including singer Khalid, dozens of actual ticket holders, or what the company calls future astronauts, board members, Virgin Group executives, and friends and fellow space billionaire Elon Musk were in attendance for this. Now, following the Following the flight, Virgin Galactic's CEO Michael Coldglazier telling me that the spaceship, based on that visual check, that initial check that they do after landing, looked, quote, pristine, according to the engineers, and that pending some further analysis and testing, that the pace for those two final test flights uh, is still on track for before the summer is out. So perhaps not surprisingly, shares of Virgin Galactic are higher pre-market this morning, Joe. But of course, just a major, major moment that I think so much of the world was watching as we've talked for so many years about the possibility of space tourism. It's finally starting to become a reality. Right. Who was the, the billionaire, Morgan? Was it the guy who paid the Russians to take him up or something? Was he a billionaire? That, yes. I mean, oh, he's yes. the one. The, the founder of Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, I'm probably going to butcher his name, but Guy Laliberté. Um, who went up and actually stayed at the International Space Station a number of years ago. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the interior looked okay, Morgan. It looked like a, uh, like a Gulfstream sort of. I, I, I felt more, you know, not that I'm like always on Gulfstream, but I felt more, more comfortable. I mean, I, I figure you could have got some gummy bears out of that little drawer they have on some of those. Have you, have you seen those? They got really, they got nuts. They got... And it's all free, truly free, for only like $60,000 for a, a short flight. But um, I, that didn't look so bad. I, I, you could talk me into maybe doing that like in 10 years, maybe, Morgan. Yeah, and I, I think, and again, based on my conversation with Branson after, um, after that flight, I did specifically ask him, given the fact that there are so many... Um, comparisons to, to the early days of aviation and what space tourism could look like, the fact that it'll be these high-priced tickets, these very big events, and then what will happen is it'll become more commonplace. You'll see production of spaceships scale, and you'll see the prices come down and more people be able to fly more regularly. And he says he expects that to be a very similar trajectory. Right now that they have bills to pay, so tickets are going to be expensive. And also right now, in terms of high net worth individuals, the market is expected to be pretty strong, at least for the next couple of years. But in the next five, ten years, it's very likely that we could see this potentially become more commonplace. Thanks. We'll see you, Morgan. For more on Virgin Galactic's historic test flight yesterday and the future of public-private partnerships in space, let's welcome NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. And, and by the way, you probably know that, that Bill is a former senator. You may not realize he's also a former astronaut as well. He went up back in 1986. And Administrator Nelson, thanks for being here today. It's really great to see you. Good morning. So back when you were going into space, did you think you would see this day where average citizens, well, not average citizens, well-funded citizens, would have the opportunity to do the same thing? It was hard to believe that because it was so tough back then. We were going on uh, machines that, for example, the space shuttle had 1,500 critical parts, any one of which failed 
and that was it. It was catastrophe. Uh, but uh, we put up Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom into suborbit 60 years ago. And now we've come to this, and I think it's great. And I think what these billionaires are doing is great. And I think what Elon Musk has done going to orbit with astronaut crews, I think that is great. You've seen Cape Canaveral and, and, and all of these places that we weren't sure we were going to use again. Uh, suddenly they're in high demand. Lots of companies kind of competing to see if they can do this. What, what's it feel, feel like at NASA? And what does it feel when you see those places that had kind of been shuttered before being used once again? There's a lot of excitement, and you described it very well. The Cape was pretty well. All those launch pads, they were abandoned, and now they've come to life. And there are frequent launches from the Cape. There's an excitement there. And now on the Kennedy Space Center side, as the largest rocket, most powerful rocket ever, is being stacked in the Vehicle Assembly Building and will launch at the end of the year the Space Launch System with its spacecraft Orion. That has got an excitement around the Kennedy Space Center that you just can't believe. You know, amb ambitious tech ventures always lead to new innovations and discoveries that we might not have found otherwise. But what do you think the biggest promise is right now with, with some of these private companies, what they're doing, what is the public promise, or what do you hope to see at least? Space manufacturing, we're seeing that already uh, on the International Space Station, which is about uh, 300 miles above us. Uh, it has constant experiments. It has pharmaceutical manufacturing. Uh, we're going to see that further out into space in the future. We're going to see mining on asteroids. We're going to see all kinds of uh, commercial ventures on the surface of the moon. The, needless to say, the heavens are there to be explored. Bill, you said that uh, you're proud of what these billionaires are doing. Senator, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders was a little less impressed. He said, here on Earth, in the richest country on the planet, half our people live paycheck to paycheck. People are struggling to feed themselves, struggling to see a doctor. But hey, the richest guys in the world are off into outer space. Yes, it's time to tax the billionaires. Uh, as somebody who served in the Senate and who knows political headwinds uh, very well, what would you say right now regarding some of this kind of class warfare that's taking place? Well, Bernie is very sincere, and he puts his finger on a lot of equities that are here on the face of the earth. Uh, but we never want to lose our character as explorers, as adventurers. That's part of who we are as Americans. We've always had a frontier, and we push that frontier. It used to be a westward frontier. Now it's upward. What's the biggest challenges that, that, that we face just in terms of being able to do some of these things in space? And, and what's your, once you're up in space, what are the big challenges? Safety. As a matter of fact, as you cut new technology, as you push the edge of the envelope, as the test pilots say, as you dare to do new things under very hostile environments, uh, it's risky. Uh, we lost 14 souls in the space shuttle. Uh, we lost three Apollo 1 astronauts. 
Uh, it is not without a price, but that again says something about our character as explorers. Virgin Galactic lost uh, a pilot as well, one of the test pilots back in 2014. How, how safe do you think um, these forms of travel are at this point between Virgin Galactic and then Blue Origin? I think Branson wouldn't have flown unless he thought it was safe. I think you'll see that in a week or so with Jeff Bezos. Uh, we've already seen that with uh, human life on the SpaceX that now takes our astronauts in their Dragon spacecraft to and from the International Space Station. So I think that they have gotten it to an acceptable level of risk. The companies may be trying to play down this idea of a space race at this point, but you've seen some pretty heated exchanges between the two, a little bit of trash talk as to whether or not Virgin Galactic is really in space since it doesn't go past the Kármán line. What do you think as somebody who's just sitting back and watching this competition? Is it good? I think it's great. Competition is always great, and they can trash talk and all of that, and that's just part of the competition. The real space race, which used to be with the Soviet Union years ago, I think that uh, space race is going to be more and more with China as the Chinese government becomes increasingly aggressive in their space program and, I might say, very successful. How do we share with other nations, China, with Russia, whoever it may be, once we're in space? The rules are a little different up there. Well, that's a, a lesson from Russia and the U.S. Back in the middle of the Cold War, 1975, an American spacecraft rendezvoused and docked with a Soviet spacecraft, and the crews lived together for nine days. And ever since, we have had cooperation between the Russians and the Americans in civil space. They are our partners on board the International Space Station. The Chinese, the Chinese government, the Chinese space program have always been very non-transparent. And so this uh, reminds us of the old Soviet Union early days, but we broke that mold with the Russians and we still cooperate today. Bill, you ever hope to go back up in space yourself? No, I'm going to leave it. it ought to go to the younger guys. And when I say guys, that's a generic term uh, because we will land uh, in just a few years, the first woman on the moon, the first person of color. And it's going to be a continuing excitement, a great journey as we venture out into the stars. Administrator Nelson, thank you so much for your time today and your perspective. It's really great talking to you. Have a great day. You too. And that's the show for today. On our rundown tomorrow, still on Earth for now. In fact, we're headed to a mystery state as CNBC unveils America's top states for business. A little hint, maybe? Our patented diabolical hints, which we do every year. So here's your first one. Ready? Turn, turn, turn. When I zoomed in, I thought I saw palm trees. The birds played the song Turn, 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 and they're from Los Angeles. Now I gotta Google to find out when the sun rises over there. It's never that easy. Maybe not. 
Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, listen and subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. And we are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.